Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. That was spectacular as always. Alrighty. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 35. If you do not have your Bible, it will be behind me on the screen. So, just so everyone's aware. If there's anything good in this sermon, it's by God's grace. That's how it is all the time. But especially today. If there's anything bad, it is human weakness. It was a very busy week. (laughs) And so I didn't know if I'd get this done in time. I had no idea. Um, So, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Anyway, Genesis chapter 34, leading up in the Genesis chapter 35. Um, as we recall, last week we had, um, we had to deal with something, one of those really dark moments in scriptures when we learn about um, Jacob's daughter who was sexually assaulted, who was raped, and then everything that happened after the fact. Um, and from that, you know, you, again, we talked about things being descriptive and pre-descriptive and how this is just telling us what happened and it shows us, again, how dark our world can be. Um, but now we're getting into, though, the end of the Jacob narrative with chapter 35. So from here on, it's going to be pretty much closing out the Taladot for Isaac especially, but then also Jacob's story where he's the main character. So starting with uh, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So chapter 35 begins with God speaking to Jacob. In it, he is commanded to return to Bethel. As the Lord reminds Jacob, it was at Bethel where Jacob first encountered God on his flight from Esau. It is here he is to dwell and make an altar to the Lord for worship, much like Abraham before him had done when he was called to Canaan. He also made an altar and worshiped. Jacob proceeds to go then to the people. He recognizes it is not enough for him to just go, but there must be purification. The purification may be necessary for two reasons. The first being Simeon and Levi's murdering of all the men of Shechem, as well as the brothers who then pillaged the city after the fact. Likewise, because there remained idolatry within the household, that might be the main reason, though, for purification, because they had been worshiping other gods within um, the camp itself. Indeed, why should they follow other gods, really? For Jacob's life reveals that the God who is there, who has kept him throughout his long journey. God promised to be with Jacob and has fulfilled his promises. Now it is Jacob's turn to fulfill his and follow after God fully, being the head of the house, and all others are to follow suit. Thus, they do end up giving the gods they had and their earrings. One has to wonder about hiding them under the terebinth tree. Some scholars note that this may represent the promise of a tithe which Jacob had made to God. Others presume that the earrings were some of the pillaged items from Shechem, thus they didn't want to keep those, um, and for purification purpose, got rid of them. Regardless, the people comply, letting go of these things to follow Jacob, who follows after God. Now we're going to come to verses 5 through 8. 
And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Buckoth. We might wonder about those around Shechem at the time. As we recall, and as I said previously, Jacob was worried about the possible repercussions over what his sons had done to the Hivites. As it is, Jacob has no reason to fear. God causes terror within the cities that were around the Israelites, which caused the other Canaanites to not attack them as they went on their way. Indeed, this concept will be introduced again during the time of the conquest during Joshua, when God also invokes his fear there as well. Without any pursuit, the journey seems less arduous. Indeed, it simply describes him arriving back at Bethel, where he immediately builds an altar, calling it El Bethel, which, as we recall, means the house of God. We then receive a quick refresher over this place as the place where God met Jacob during his flight from Esau, which uh, is a constant theme. We then receive the, fu- the first of several deaths in this chapter, as we learn Rebecca's nurse passes away. That this is Rebecca's nurse is interesting, as one might wonder why she is with Jacob at all at this point, and why her death is recorded, but not Rebecca's death. This has caused some scholars to note that it is likely Rebecca had passed away while Jacob had been in Padam Aram, and at some point her nurse Deborah had joined with Jacob. Perhaps she was with Esau, and then she decided to stay with Jacob. Um, this death still causes mourning for the family as it is named Alan Bakoth, which means Oak of Weeping. Indeed, we must wonder if Deborah had reminded Jacob of his mother, which further caused him sorrow over her passing. So now we come to verses 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come with from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Um, So a lot of verses, but there's actually, we already know everything that's going on. The crux of this passage is the section that were just read, in which God appears again to Jacob. Um, We are reminded of the Yabak incident when Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and then he changed Yabak to Peniel, which means uh, face of God. And we are further established that it was the same God who met him at Bethel who fought against him in the night at the Yabak. After making himself known, God reaffirms the covenant with Jacob. He also adds the blessing to, the, to be fruitful and multiply, which was similar to Adam and Eve, to Noah, um, and others, Abraham as well. There is also the promise of nation and company of nations and kings. Uh, this is the first time this is established with Jacob, though this phraseology has been used before with Abraham. Likewise, the promise of land is again given to Jacob, just as it had been for his grandfather and father. 
After the covenant blessings are established, God departs and Jacob raises a pillar providing a drink offering and he pours oil on it. This is a way to remind us of the promise made by Jacob that he would follow after God, as well as the promise of giving a tithe. We are then reminded of the fact that Jacob had named the place Bethel, which was that uh, he had named it previously on his flight from Esau, again, house of God is Bethel. So now we come to verses 16 through 21. Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. After Jacob had stayed in Bethel for a time, he decides to move further south. During their stay at Bethel, in Bethel, Rachel had been blessed with conception, but we learn immediately that the labor was hard as they continue on their journey. Sometimes we can forget that prior to the last century or so, childbearing was one of the main reasons for mortality with women um, throughout human history. Before we learn of this, however, we also learn that she is having another son, information provided to us through the midwife. This is an answer to the prayer for Rachel um, previously. Indeed, after the birth of Joseph, she had asked God that she would be provided another son. But while we may want to rejoice, we also learn we must mourn as we are informed that her soul was departing. Thus, the blessing she had longed for ends up being the cause of her death. Indeed, she names her new son Ben-Oni before she passes, which means son of my sorrow. Indeed, Rachel, who had so desperately wanted children, now passes away, giving birth to her last. And in all honesty, um, this is a very tragic ending for Rachel. Though we do notice that Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, which, as far as we can tell, means son of my right hand. The right hand was considered the dominant hand, in other words, the hand of strength. One has to wonder if he changed his name because he had hope for a happier outcome than what had occurred. Unfortunately, we will soon find no such outcome will occur in Jacob's life. From this, it specifically mentions Rachel's death. As we notice, it is characterized as her soul departing from her. And Jacob then buries her near Ephrath, near Bethlehem, and placed a pillar over her tomb, which, as we find, was still in existence even during the time of the writing of Genesis. After this, Jacob that is Israel, pitches his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, which is even further south from Ephrath. Um, So if we notice, he is further making his way south through the land of Canaan. So verses 22 through 26. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben's, uh, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. If there was previous hope of changing Benjamin's name from sorrow to strength, it seems to be dashed in this simple verse. We learn that Reuben lays with Bilhah, committing a form of incest, since she was his father's wife, concubine. It was actually, he had married her in a way, so uh, it's hard to describe that situation, Jacob. Indeed, she was the servant of Rachel, whom Rachel had 
given to Jacob in order to conceive. So we must wonder about this. Is it possible Reuben was getting back at his father uh, for his greater love toward Rachel than Leah, who was his mother? Was this, as some scholars know, a way for Reuben to challenge his father's position as head of the household? Or was it, as others say, a means of establishing his preeminence as the eldest son above the others? Unfortunately, none of these things are known to us. All we know is that Jacob heard of it but did nothing at the time, though there will be consequences later on for Reuben over this action. At this point, we revisit the sons of Jacob. We see the great blessing which has come over the house as he has 12 sons. Indeed, this may be a way for us to remember God's grace over Jacob. With that, however, there is one caveat that Benjamin was not actually born in Padan Aram. As we saw, he was born in Canaan. Thus, this text seems to be a way of summarizing all the sons Jacob had been blessed with throughout this journey. Now we come to verses 27 through 29, and we close out the chapter. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the day of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We now come to the closing verses of the chapter. We learn that Jacob makes his way back to Isaac, his father, who was now at Mamre. Indeed, this is the place where Abraham had bought land for the family burial ground. We learn that Isaac was 180 years old, and in this final year, Isaac passed away. Indeed, the text describes his life as old and full of days. Thus, God had blessed Isaac with a long life. We learn in the final scene that both his sons buried him. And this act of reconciliation between the two is seen in the final moment as both sons come together in order to pay homage to their father. In a peaceful scene, we see in the end that Isaac's family had been brought back together despite their previous estrangement. Now, one has to wonder if Jacob will be so lucky. With this ends the life of Isaac and his Taladot. It also leads to the next part of the story um, in Genesis where we learn a new story to be told, and that is, of course, with Joseph. So we're actually getting through Genesis pretty quickly. Congratulations. <laughs> it's only been, what, three years? No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so their main point. The main point of this section is to conclude the Taladot of Isaac, as remember, Taladot begins with, these are the days of Isaac, and then it goes through a storyline, and then it ends with his death. And then uh, usually the Taladot actually involves someone else along the line. Um, so as well as to conclude the story where Jacob is the central character. So we conclude two things at once here. It all flows together as we learn of the deaths of loved ones, as well as the final number of Jacob's sons, which are 12. In the end, God has blessed Jacob and his family and kept him from harm despite the many toils and snares which were before him. In the final show of reconciliation, we see how the brothers, Esau and Jacob, come together to bury their father, Isaac, who is placed in the family burial site with their father, Abraham. All right. Applications. It was shortly after leaving Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob first encountered God at Luz, renamed Bethel. We've heard this about a hundred times. Since that first encounter, he has continued to be blessed by God. God has been with him every step of the way, regardless of the attempts of Laban or others who have tried to either take away the blessings or hinder him in some way. It should not surprise us then that as Jacob's wanderings come to an end, God would 
remind Jacob of the promises he made with the first encounter they had at Bethel. In that place, Jacob promised that should he be able to return, God would be his God. At this point, God comes calling. We see at the very beginning of the chapter as God calls Jacob back to Bethel. Indeed, it is God who comes to Jacob and commands him to do this. It isn't Jacob's, Jacob himself expected to fulfill his own promises on his own. No, God knows human weaknesses. He knows human inability. And as such, God sets reminders for Jacob and urges him back to the place of the promise. When we consider this, I suspect each of us could say we have had the same kind of experiences with God. Indeed, when it comes to salvation, it is God who calls us to follow after him. It is his gospel which seizes our affections so deeply that we can do nothing but follow the God who gave his son on our behalf. Thus, even from the beginning of our conversion, we can see the hand of God at work in our lives. We are not alone. But it goes beyond this as well. One of the most important points of the teachings of Jesus is when he talks about the Holy Spirit. Consider what he says. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, um, he will bear witness about me. Thus the Helper, the Holy Spirit, is the one who teaches us leading us further into the knowledge of God, the love of our Father, um, and His Son, Jesus Christ. He gives us wisdom, bearing witness to the truth of the gospel of Christ. It is by God's grace that the Spirit has come to us, seizing our affections through the proclamation of the gospel. But it is not only that, though this would certainly be enough, wouldn't it? Indeed, in Romans, Paul speaks of the Spirit in this way. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we see how the Spirit is within us, bearing witness to the truth of the gospel, that those who are in Christ are now sons of God Most High. Now some will wonder, why not say children there, Paul? I mean, it's a little bit, you know, non-inclusive in our day. Um, The reason for this is the historical significance in that sons were the ones who received the inheritance. Thus, we find all who are in Christ will receive the inheritance which is promised to them through Christ. And that inheritance is an eternal kingdom. The Spirit continues to bear witness to this reality. Since we are sons of God, we will receive the inheritance. But that's not all. For later in the chapter, Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As such, the Spirit 
who first brings to us the joys of salvation, who is within us teaching us of the ways of God, who reminds us of our inheritance, and who intercedes with us and for us. He is with us in our prayers. And indeed, interceding on behalf of us to God. Jacob was reminded of what to do by God. And by the grace of God, he does the same for us through the working of the Spirit within us. As such, the godly reminders given to Jacob are not only for him, but remind us that God does the same for us. Thus, like Jacob, we are not alone. We have God who is with us and for us and has given his spirit to us now and forever. As such, we should follow Jacob's example. Instead of delaying the call, Jacob faithfully answered it. He did not delay. He did not say, I will bide my time. Instead, he immediately turns in the direction that he should go, leading all those with him in the endeavor to glorify God. In this, we are constantly reminded of how back and forth Jacob has been in his life. Sometimes he is the example to be followed. Other times the example to be avoided. He was a failure, and yet he was also faithful. He is the grand example of God's grace and mercy, which he bestows upon each of us. But each of us must learn in this moment to not delay our time with our God. Do not start tomorrow to follow him. Start now. Turn now. Desire him this second. Hold on tight to God and never let go right now. The world says you have time. God says to follow in obedience this moment. If we believe the Spirit is in us right now, telling us, urging us into a deeper and greater relationship with our God, then we should follow. So what shall we do? I say, let us no longer allow the things of the world to keep us down. Instead, let us follow our God and follow gladly. For we know our God is good and perfect, and his urging within us is good and perfect, and it leads to life abundantly in his love. Is there anything greater than this? I can only say with as much conviction as I can muster that this is great. For it comes to us from our great and mighty God, and it leads us directly to our great and mighty God. And then this leads to the second point. In this chapter, we experienced three deaths. First, the death of Deborah. Second, the death of Rachel. And third, the death of Isaac. This is not even considering the death of Rebekah, who likely passed away while Jacob was in Padan Maram. As such, we see a significant amount of death in this chapter, and it always brings us back to the reality of the fall. For it was from the first act of disobedience with Adam and Eve that the genealogies began to have that little phrase at the end, and then he died. Whereas once life was abundant, soon enough it became more and more that death had become dominant. Despite all the faithfulness, despite all the grace, despite all the mercy, all the blessings God has bestowed on these individuals, they still pass away. Indeed, Isaac, who was promised a great inheritance, he passes away without seeing all of it fulfilled, just as his father before him. Isaac was one who died in the faith, trusting in the promises of God to outlive him. 
This is truly a great example of the faith. Because as it is, God did make promises. He made promises from the beginning in the lives of the patriarchs. The question is, did God fulfill the promises? Did his promises and his faithfulness outlast the lies of those who first gave the promise um, he gave the promises to? Did he fulfill his word? If the answer to this question is yes, then we have all reason to hope. If the answer is yes, God's faithfulness has no bounds. For even though they died, he fulfilled all that he had told them. If this is the case, then we have all reason for perseverance. We have all reason to continue forward with heads held high. We have every reason to continue to take our deep breaths, knowing that even if the next should be our last, then our God is faithful. For in the patriarchs we receive the reality that death cannot stop our God. Death cannot inhibit him from doing great good and fulfilling all that he has set out to accomplish for his glory, which includes the salvation that he has given from sin and death. God has made so many promises in the past, so many people, and yet he has never failed. Not once, not ever has he failed. As such, we who come after these individuals, we who come so many generations later, thousands of years later, We can look back at the promises and the faithfulness of God and we can have heart to continue forward in the knowledge that our God is faithful to his word. Thus, if he has made a promise to us, he will fulfill it. Can any of us think of a promise God has made to us? I can think of a good one right away. comes from 1 John. "Let Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. Eternal life is for those who believe in the Son of God. Eternal life is for those who trust in the righteousness of the Son rather than in their own strivings. Eternal life is for those who find the grace and love of God as displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eternal life has been promised. And this promise is sure because the one who promised is sure. If we learn anything from the life of the patriarchs, it should be this. Nothing can hinder God. Nothing at all. Thus, though many of us have fallen asleep, many of us have died and tasted the bitterness of death, we know that the bitterness will only last a short while. Soon we will all awake into a new life where death will never take hold again. Indeed, while it seems as though death is abundant, the truth is, life is abundant in Christ. As Andrew Peterson, who's a singer-songwriter I really, really like, he once sang, I believe in the holy shores of uncreated light. I believe there is power in the blood. And all the death that there ever was, if you set it next to life, I believe it would barely fill a cup. Because I believe there's power in the blood. Amen to that. For death as described in the text today is a separation of body and soul. And that separation for those who are in Christ is not permanent. Instead, there will be a great reconciliation between our bodies and our souls. With our bodies being clothed in immortality, just as it was with our Lord now. So it will be with us. Why? Because there is power in the blood. 
So we mourn the temporary reality of death. We mourn the separation of body and soul which occur. But there will come a time when this is changed. And we are transformed. And death will never separate us from ourselves again. Praise God then for the greatness of eternal life. And how though death occurs, it will never overcome the power of Christ who reigns supreme now and forever. And we praise God that nothing, not even death in itself, can hinder our mighty God. Naturally, this leads us to the gospel. Um, And when it comes to origins, I mean, we see the origins of the human race all around us at all times, if we're clever enough to look. Because in each other, we see glimpses of the image of God that each of us has been bestowed upon. That each of us has this intrinsic worth, and we can see it with each other, and we can see it in humanity. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing that we have such creativity and wonder and the majesty of God's creation, and it's all right in front of you at all times. Do you know how special you are? (laughs) How unique you are? You yourself. You are wonderfully made. Wonderfully made. But then we come to the problem of the fall, and that's something that we definitely saw today with three deaths occurring and with Reuben's sin. The fact that purification has to happen (laughs) at all in humanity, but it does, doesn't it? And the reason why purification needs to happen is because we do fall into sin. And like our forefathers and our foremothers, all of us fall into the same dreadful trap that is set before us, in that we each sin in some way. Whether we lie, we cheat, we steal, or as Christ even went even further with all of these things when he said, if you hate your brother in your heart, it's like murdering, and God counts it as murder. Or if you lust after someone, he considers it adultery. God set the bar really high, and we can't ever reach it. But if he didn't set the high, then I suspect he wouldn't be God. So it's a good thing he did. So unfortunately for us, though, we can't ever attain it because we always fall into sin. We always fail. And it's shown in the fact that we all still do pass away, don't we? We all still die. Because judgment must come for us. One way or another, we must all experience that bitterness of death. But, the ever-present but, there is hope. And the hope is found in the redemption of Christ. And how he reconciles us to God. How he steps down from heaven and takes each of us by the hand and lifts us out of the darkness. You know, and it's just like we talked about today with Jacob, how he is sitting there outside of the town of Shechem after all this bloodshed. And God reaches down and says, come follow me. Come follow me. That's how it is with us too. We're outside of Shechem. We see all the blood and atrocities. And God says, come follow me. And we can because of the redemption found in Jesus Christ. Because his blood was shed so that no more blood could be shed. For the hope that no more blood would be shed. And we find this great redemption And we find this great reconciliation and we consider how the reconciliation happens in in Isaac's family. Brothers who once hated each other are now reconciled to one another. And the same is true of us. People who were once 
distant, not loving one another, they're reconciled together. How is that even possible? But by the grace of our Father in heaven, through the Son of Jesus Christ, and how through him, even people who were once enemies can become brothers and sisters of the faith, how even through him, whole people groups can be changed. And in our current situation, in our society, I know that's one of the most important things we can do is proclaim the gospel because that's going to be the only thing that brings any kind of reconciliation to this very dark and disturbing world. But it can. And so we rejoice. And so we keep going. And where does it lead? To glory. If there's anything that Christ leads us to, it's to that. To the glory of God unhindered. Because he is the epitome of the glory of God in human form. And so though we die, glory awaits for us as we will be raised just as Jesus Christ was raised. So, what do we do? Have our heads held high, we continue forward in song, and we rejoice knowing that Christ has come and redemption is here. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the stories of the patriarchs, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the twelve tribes. And Lord, we thank you because you remind us first and foremost that darkness exists in this world, but you also remind us that darkness doesn't need to win, that light wins, and how you can take people who have broken all the rules and you can change their hearts so that they do follow after you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to bestow this blessing upon us, that we would all be like Jacob who turns toward you. And though we may stumble in the night and we may wrestle with you in the night, in the end we ask for your blessing, though we do. And so, Lord, we ask that your grace would be upon us, your mercy would flow forth, and that we would know truly the deep and everlasting love that you have already given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.